Hello. Did you get an RV? <laughs> Who told you that? That's a meet. He's one of my oldest friends in the world. So, obviously I'm recording already. You probably guessed that. We have our slightly record voice on. Midway through quarantine, Amit decided he wanted to go camping. But he didn't want full-on backpacker-style camping. He's a 43-year-old man with twins, a bad back, and disposable income. He wanted a simulation of camping. So he decided to rent an RV. At first, I thought it was a brilliant idea because, you know, it's their own hotel on wheels. So Amit signs up to rent an RV, and he learns that with a family of four, the minimum size RV he can get is 25 feet long. And then when you look at the 25 to the 30 foot, I mean, why not have more space inside? So I said, fuck, let's just do the 30. And then uh, about two weeks before... I'm seeing trucks. I'm seeing, like, Walmart trucks. I'm like, I think the RV's bigger than this. I think the <laughs> RV's bigger than this. And I realized I there's no way. I mean, I just I don't want to add that level of, of horror to an already, <laughs> you know, stressful time. Why try to why try to fucking careen through four hours of highways? I can't drive a fucking 30-foot truck. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not for me. I mean, just sleeping in a tent is also not for me. <laughs> this is all about RVs, right? This is your RV podcast? Daddy? That's my son, Diego. He's seven. I have a question. What? I thought this episode was about coffee. It is, Diego. It is. So, from faculty, this is First Time Long Time, stories about sports for people who may not like sports. I'm Aaron Wolf, and this season we're talking about what we can learn from watching the last games of every major sport that were played before quarantine. Episode 1 was all about basketball, but this episode is going to be a little bit different. For this episode, I watched the last hockey game, and I really didn't understand anything about it. But while watching this incredibly complex and honestly inaccessible game, I realized that hockey can teach us something. Specifically, its sounds and its basic particulate parts can teach us about designing workable, human-scaled solutions to massive and overwhelming problems, like Amit and his RV. And we'll get back to the RV and to the whole design thing in a little bit, but first, let's tackle the really important questions. Julia, who's softer, me or me? I don't know. You guys both are pretty unimpressive. <laughs> That's Julia. She's our producer and a robot sent from the future to destroy me. Should I be recording? Yeah. Always be recording. <laughs> I was waiting for Josh. We did this in the first episode. This gag can't happen a second time, and now it's going to happen a second time. <laughs> Hey, sorry. And that's Joshy. Should I be recording already? Okay. We're going to have to work on this whole always be recording thing. But anyway, Josh, Julia, and I watched the last hockey game before quarantine, a truly nothing game between the Ottawa Senators and the LA Kings. And aside from there being kind of a cute metaphor there about democracy against monarchy, Josh and I really didn't know how to approach this game. I never really watched hockey, so I just kind of watched it in like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, hockey is really hard to follow if you don't know the game, and I really don't know the game. So, it starts, the ref drops the puck, and then, honestly, I don't know what happened next. Like, I couldn't tell if I was watching a great, exciting game or a terribly boring game. Sometimes I could follow the puck, mostly it just felt overwhelming. 
Like, in the first few minutes of the game, someone, I truly don't remember who, scored, and I missed it. Like, suddenly people stopped skating and just started celebrating, and holy cow, how in the world am I going to write an entire episode about this stupid game? I felt like a seven-year-old. So, to that end, here's Diego, trying to explain what he sees while watching the game. Um, I see them tackling each other, which I didn't know they did before. They're going pretty fast, so they must train to be really good skaters. Like, everybody once in a while, sort of like circles. Does the game look like it's fun? Yes, but it also looks like it's hard. I see that it, they're really good at getting up when they fall down, so <laughs> they're pretty good at that. <laughs> That's Nola. She's my daughter. She's three. Have you ever watched hockey before? No, but one time Mama took us ice skating and I got to go on a sled, which is one thing that was so, so fun. So it looks like ice skating. Okay, aside from that being kind of weapons-grade cute for my children, the reason I'm playing you this tape is that ultimately, all they had to say about hockey is kind of all I had to say about hockey. It's fast and it looks hard and kind of fun. And sort of like ice skating. And that's honestly all Joshi had to say as well. We're trying to look at it as objective as possible. It is quite a, it's quite a pretty game um, in a sense that you have all these like larger than life burly characters, 250 pound people skating around on, you know, tiny little blades. Outside of that, yeah, it was just, it's, it was kind of chaos, but ballet at the same time. It is chaotic and it's the combination of sort of grace that, these players have to have in order to master ice skating, which is a completely separate sport. And the fact that they are allowed to just break out into fights and punch each other and slam each other against the walls, that contradiction. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, that all is true. But it wasn't the thing that got me. The thing that got me was this. I have always loved the sounds of just skates on ice. Even just that, isolated, I think it's I think it's a really nice sound. And combined with all the other hockey sounds, it, it goes back to this contradiction thing. It's you have this like beautiful, pure, just ice sound, and then you have the sounds of like stick handling, which is a little like still kind of crisp but like just a little bit grimy, and then you have the sounds of like guys' bodies just being slammed which is really rough. But then you also have like the music of hockey, which I think is so like Americana in this really bombastic way. Uh, I I like all of it a lot. I think Julia is right. Hockey changes once you start listening to it. It was Christmas time in 2013. That's Mary Fiello. She grew up in Tampa, Florida and didn't care about hockey at all. She played volleyball. That was her game. But when she was 16, she went to her first Tampa Bay Lightning game. And I went and it was one of the first things that triggered. I mean, just the sounds of the skates on the ice and the sounds of the Zambonis. And um, Tampa Bay has Tesla coils that they use because of the lightning. So there's always something that's like stimulating your ears and you're always looking around for what's going on. Mary fell in love with the sounds of the game so deeply that she became a full-time journalist covering hockey. And one of her first pieces was asking the players what their favorite sounds were. A couple of them actually like sat back and they're like, 
you know, I've never actually thought about it that way. That's really cool. But I was impressed with just some of the detail that they shared with me on just how their personal memories and um, their personal love for the game actually connects with that sound. Like when Stamkos was like, I love hearing the sound of my skates on the ice when I first go out because it reminds me of skating around on the pond in his backyard. When we would skate, uh, we'd go to the, a golf course and we'd shovel off the snow and we'd skate on the water hazard. That's Elliot Koretz. He works with sound and you can hear it in the way he describes his memories of playing hockey as a kid. I'm not going to add any sound to this. No music, no effects, just his voice. Listen, can you hear the sounds he's talking about? It's a very unique, hollow sound to skating outdoors and skating on a body of water. It's different than a skating rink, whatever. And it's the surface of that ice is hollow. It's a little bumpy because maybe there's little twigs or little things that are embedded in the ice from uh, just nature. And just thinking about that sound throws me right back to that moment as a kid sitting on the ice and lacing up my skates and being outside and it's a it's a completely visceral experience to remember what that felt like and sounded like I don't have those memories to attach to I never learned how to skate I never played street hockey it's all completely foreign to me but when I started listening to the game I was also able to see it you can't follow the puck with your eyes alone. You need to hear the tap of the pass, the muffing of a shot off the goalie's pads, the way a player screeches to a stop spraying ice and sound all over the rink. The complexity of a given go is a symphony of metal and ice and rubber and wood. All of that sound teaches me how to appreciate this game. But that leaves the question, why does sound do that to us? Sound is strange. Think about our other senses, touch, smell, taste, sight. For the most part, they're all associated with an object that's right there with you. But sound doesn't work that way. We hear things that we can't see or touch or smell all the time. Sound brings them to us. We feel them the way you feel a jet plane roaring overhead or a thunderclap in the distance. Elliot called it visceral, as if sound gets in under our skin, into our guts. Here's Julia again. I was on a family trip. I was like maybe 12 at the time, and we we're driving to Niagara Falls and we get lost, and we make like so many stops for food and for bathroom breaks. We don't get to Niagara Falls until it's like 1 a.m. It's completely dark. But we're there, so we go outside and we look at it. We don't see anything, but we hear we hear the sounds um, of Niagara Falls. I, I remember it so well, and I remember that experience so well. Whereas I've seen, you know, many other beautiful things that I, I do not remember as well because it wasn't as visceral of an experience. There's that word again, visceral. Stop right now. Listen. How much do you hear? It's crazy, right? Right now, writing this, I hear the hum of the fridge, the sound of a Zoom meeting in the other room, the cluck of some sparrows, 
the chirp of a chipmunk, water rushing through pipes. Sound is everywhere, and for the most part, we edit it out. But when one sound stands out, the rise and fall of a cicada, a siren, a heart beating next to your ear, it imprints on us in a different way. And that's where Elliot's work comes in, because Elliot works as a sound designer. And before we go any further, let's talk about what a sound designer is. Now, this might be surprising, but in every movie that you've ever seen, almost every single sound, from footsteps to doors slamming to laser beams shooting through the air, all of them were added after the scene was shot. And it's somebody's job to choose exactly what all those things are going to sound like. That is the job of sound designing and sound editing. And it's easy to mistake this for a technical job, but it's not. It's an art form. Do you remember the first the, the first time that a sound meant something more to you than just sort of diegetic, literal noise? Wow. Uh, that, that, that's a hell of a question. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really I have to think about that a little bit. Um, you know, I think, you know, growing up in Boston, there is just a myriad of sounds that hit you all the time of all the rapid transportation, the way that the train squealed and all that. But um, I think, you know, if you want to go really deep, I, I had a memory that I was just discussing with my wife the other day of being uh, a, a very young and being in a room at night by myself in a thunder and lightning storm. And this, the thunder and lightning frightened the hell out of me. Can you feel that fear? I can. Just like Julia could remember hearing, not seeing Niagara Falls, or Mary can remember her first hockey game. Sound is feeling, and recreating that feeling, simulating entire worlds just out of sound on massive scales, is what Elliot does for a living. I've worked on a lot of really fascinating films over the years, being John Malkovich. I supervised the movie Collateral with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. I worked on the movie Apollo 13, Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Fortunately enough for the purpose of this conversation, Miracle, uh, the hockey movie I did, might be my favorite. Miracle is the story of the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team who beat the best hockey team in the world, the Soviet Union. But it's not just a classic underdog movie. There have been tons of those. Miracle features scene after scene of close-up hockey. And we're talking everything from the tension before a face-off to the best players in the world puck handling and passing as though you're right there with them. It's claustrophobic and overwhelming and wonderful. You know, I was so fortunate. Uh, in Miracle, the director, Gavin O'Connor, he said, I want to make the best sounding sports movie ever. What else could you possibly say to a sound designer that would get them excited? You know, it's an amazing number of layers for the hockey game. And ultimately, it turned into quite a challenge as to what to feature at any moment, because we're also telling a story. Elliot, like all sound professionals, has a massive library that he has meticulously cataloged and can call up instantly. But the best sounding sports movie can't rely on canned sound. It has to be right. Take, for example, this story he told us about working on Apollo 13. In Apollo 13, Tom Hanks has this horrible nightmare where he's in the capsule and a fire starts 
and there's a master alarm that goes off in the capsule and we put something in initially that we thought was dramatically cool for the master alarm and we screened it for Ron Howard and he said something we hadn't expected to hear he said is that the right master alarm sound for the command capsule and we said well it's a movie and we did something that we thought was emotionally correct and all and he said well I'd like the right one if you could do it. Now, Ron Howard, as far as I know, has never been in a command capsule. I mean, the rocket launched four years before he played Richie Cunningham on Happy Days. And yet, Ron Howard knew. He felt that the alarm wasn't right. How would people react to a shortcut that was taken in the greatest sounding sports movie of all time? So we rented hockey rinks, went out and, and had people who could skate very well we put microphones on the skate blades, you know, shot pucks, stick handling. I mean, every individual sound that you would hear in a hockey game was recorded in isolation. All the referees' whistles. I mean, we even went as far, and this is kind of, in a way, it's a little crazy. We used a different skate for the Russian players than we did for the, for the American players because it does sound a tiny bit different. In the movie, the Soviet skates are deeper, grittier. They crunch and tear through the ice, and you can hear it in the film. It's menacing. All of Elliot's work is totally worth it. Miracle sounds amazing. He built a world that you can live in just out of sound. Sound, even subtle, tiny differences in sound, can evoke so much feeling. Hockey is back, being played like so many other sports behind closed doors. Only a few people will hear the live sounds of the game and experience the world that Elliot so lovingly recreated and Mary fell in love with. Mary was there, reporting, and, of course, listening. But it wasn't just the sounds of the game she noticed. It was also a sound that was missing. You're hearing the skates. You're hearing the clack of the puck. You're hearing it going off the crossbar. Um, all these different things are going on on the ice. But then when you take a minute and you actually sit back, I actually missed hearing the sound of Diana typing on her keyboard. I missed hearing the sound of Dirk shooting like 15 frames per second on his camera. I missed those little details that make covering the game so much more fun. And that's one of the things that I'm taking away from hockey right now. There's a sound associated with this moment, just like there's a sound associated with hockey. The sound of sirens, of neighbors, of blood rushing in your ears as you stay up late at night worrying. But the true marker of this moment is the absence of sound. The silence that this stillness has given us. It's unsettling, and it's important to pay attention to. Sports, the way we tend to consume them, live or on TV, are a crazy maximalist orgy of sound and sights. It can be, like a meat in his giant RV, overwhelming and alienating, which is exactly how I felt about hockey going into this. But just like a meat in his RV, if you strip away bits of it, you find something that may be a bit uncomfortable at first, like camping in an actual tent, but also potentially thrilling, like camping in an actual tent. So, 
What do you get when you strip away all the noise and visuals and emotions and TV angles and professional athletes, like literally everything about the sport that makes it a sport? Well, you get something oddly perfect and utterly sweet, a game called knock hockey. I have no idea what knock hockey is. The first time I looked up a Google knock hockey was about five seconds after you said the term knock hockey. <laughs> and, and like looking at the picture, it wasn't, it didn't even like spark a shadow of a memory of like, oh yeah, that thing. Like you had, you just had zero uh, exposure to this game. Air hockey. Yeah. Sure. Knock hockey. Never seen it. Julia, knock hockey. Never. I've never heard of it. Never seen it until you mentioned it. That is fundamentally insane to me. It's insane. But you played, you played, not, you played air hockey, like a professional Bostonian thug. <laughs> Jen, you're up on the air hockey table. It's your game. Like that? At the bar in Harvard? Sure, exactly. It's my life story. Distilled in a sentence. Knock hockey, if you're like Julia and Joshi and have never heard of it, is a perfect tabletop analog version of hockey. And it was a constant fixture in my life growing up. You know, I, I was born in 1977. That's Ari Goldblatt. He works for the Carom Company, the people that make knock hockey. And he grew up on Long Island, surrounded by the game. We just had that typical 70s style <laughs> design. I mean, like super shag carpeting, <laughs> uh, like a fireplace that almost looked like a spaceship. <laughs> and in that setting, I do have memories of... The large size knock hockey, it was just always around. And every now and then a cousin comes over, you have a sleepover or, you know, mom unplugs the Nintendo for something, you know, because you did something stupid and you're like, oh, and you just whip it out, you know. But then I also remember day camps when the weather got bad and you had to go in the rec center and then out of some, you know, hidden trap door, the camp director pulls out dozens of these boards and now you're like in knock hockey land. And then, you know, you know, it's a 10 year old or 12 year old playing with your peers. Then it gets kind of ruthless, ruthless knock hockey. For me, knock hockey was school. I went to elementary school in East Harlem in a place called CPE2, a public school that was wedged into a building with like four other schools or something. I don't have too many memories before my family moved to the suburbs, but I do remember rainy day recesses in the lunchroom gym at CPE and the sea of wooden knock hockey sets. Pairs of kids just banging away, playing a version of a sport that I promise you none of them had any experience of. My experience of hockey was knock hockey. Like, I learned about face-offs from knock hockey, not the other way around. Right. Growing up, did you play hockey? Did you have experience of hockey? Uh, not really. Right. But knock hockey, everyone in the New York area played knock hockey. When I still was living in Queens, it was a game that was in my parents' therapist's waiting room. That's a meet again. I remember mostly playing in the TV room and having it resting against the wall. It's so loud. I can't imagine your dad being like, yeah, just, just play. I think it was, I mean, most of the time he was at work, but he is the one that actually brought that particular board. He found up the street. Someone was getting rid of it. In the early 80s, that's how prevalent knock hockey was. You could literally find one walking down the street. And I loved this game. The way the wooden puck felt in my hands, the way it slammed into the walls and whistled as it passed through the goal. Even now, thinking of it, it just fills me with this hopeful, sweet feeling, a kind of innocence, a reminder that I was once a kid and that 
things used to feel really different than they do now. This game means so much to me, and yet my esteemed colleagues at First Time Long Time Headquarters have never even heard of it. So, what is knock hockey anyway? In the simplest ways possible, can you just describe the actual board? Sure thing. So it is a game that is built on a two foot by three foot board that has 45 degree angle pieces of wood in all four corners and then a square block in front of the respective goals. It looks like a rectangular hockey rink, except instead of curved corners, there are these wooden triangles, and instead of a goaltender, there's a square wooden block. The goals are little slits in the solid wood bumpers that run all around the board, and that's it. A couple of paint lines, a center circle for face-off, a wooden puck, and, if you haven't lost them yet, two red plastic hockey sticks that you use to bang the puck around. Players take turns trying to score goals. It's super simple, and it's super satisfying. It's maybe the perfect balance of complexity with simplicity. Like you have an own style, an own strategy, the way you hit the puck, whether it's a backhand or forehand. It can very quickly become a very competitive game. That's one style. The other style of knock hockey joy is all those summer days where we were too lazy to go outside but we have to do something. It's sort of an activity that's less than nothing, but not much. So playing knock hockey with the air conditioning on, listening to rubber sole or or three feet high and rising, and just sort of like, just sort of being in that flow is like, is a great sort of, you know, I have great, I have great memories of that, you know? And that's all part of the magic, right? The rules of this game, the physical makeup of the game, is so simple that it allows for kids to do the thing that kids do best. Invent and imagine. A few months ago, I heard a designer from LEGO describe the toy as having high ceilings and wide walls. Not only is there very little limit to what you can achieve with a set of LEGOs, high ceilings, but there are also many different ways to get there, wide walls. And it's kind of the same with Nakaki. As a kid, there were no limits to what we would do with this game. We never had sticks or the pucks, but we played with red checkers and flicked it with our thumbs. And there were so many, just so many styles of play and house rules. Okay, so house rules. If the puck is halfway through, goal or no goal? It is definitely a goal. And can you describe to me, like, this is amazing. Can you describe what one it has to do to, to, to test whether or not it is through enough? The, the universal and the only way to gauge whether or not we have an official Karam Company knock hockey goal is simply by taking the stick or permitted uh, the finger, running it from one corner, passing the goal to the other corner, If there's any contact made between the aforementioned stick or finger with the puck, that is an official knock hockey goal of full value, one point. It's brilliant. You have to break the plane of the back of the board. It's not enough to break the plane of the front of the board. Correct. There were so many house rules. If it lands on your defensive area, you get to go again. If it's in the goalie's triangle, you can do a trick shot. If the puck flies off the board, dealer's choice. But... There was one universal rule growing up that everyone I knew played with. 
Do you remember what we used to say to count off for the face-off? Nakaki one, Nakaki two, Nakaki three. Wow. Uh, you actually filled in a memory void that I had because I just knew it was on three, but I forgot the knock hockey one, knock hockey two. No, knock. That was a real thing. That was what you said. That kept the timing. Yes. On. Yes. Because right now with my kids, I'll admit I'll 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 quick hit on three. <laughs> But I haven't taught them Nakaki one, Nakaki two, Nakaki three. Yeah, man. Now I now I have to give them this knowledge, and they could use it against me. But it's only fair. There is that portal. There, it's it's like this sacred little chant you didn't know you had. I bought a Nakaki set because you reminded me about Nakaki. I brought it outside a few days ago, and just sitting on the lawn. It's the body positioning. It's that, it's almost like, you know, like a, a beautiful French woman sitting like on a, on a field, like legs <laughs> sort of splayed to the side, leaning on one arm, you know, <laughs> like it's this, not an athletic position, but <laughs> a very good leveraging position yeah. if you're very right hand dominant. How, how immediately could you remember? Like, was it just full muscle memory? Full muscle memory when I played my sister, who's, you know, you know my sister, very competitive, but hasn't, hasn't picked up a uh, plastic stick probably in 35 years. She went off to a 5-0 lead. <laughs> it's like I, I forgot that this whole incredible, simple world exists. It was... A little, uh, little fireworks went off in my head, and and then I said, "Jesus Christ, this is this is the perfect time <laughs> to get one." Right, and that's the other thing about this game in this moment of time. For about six years, my wife and I did everything we could to keep screens away from our kids. Two months into quarantine, Diego was teaching his three-year-old sister how to play Animal Crossing on a Nintendo Switch. Screens are taking over our life more than ever before. We know that it just changes your mind. And and as soon as you take that device away from a child after four or even two hours, you see the withdrawal happening. And they just are not the same child. And they... They throw a tantrum and they say things they would normally not say and they get worked up and they scream. And then 20 minutes later, they're like, come out of their days. And they're like, what's going on? And like, hey, remember me? I'm your dad. Uh, let's go. Do, we're going to go do something now. Nakaki might be the perfect analog antidote for this moment. And by the way, I'm not alone in thinking this. Despite their factory being closed for six weeks due to the coronavirus, they've seen a 35% increase in sales this year. And it makes sense. Because the thing about knock hockey is that it's not just an alternative to hockey or video games or screen time. It's a perfect minimalist expression of an incredibly complicated sport. And there's practically zero bar for entry to be a great knock hockey player. As soon as you can hold the sticks, you're ready to play. And that's just not the same for any other. And, and I really can't stress this enough. Any other simulation of a sport in the world. Think about it. Nintendo, PlayStation, foosball, whatever. They're hard to learn how to play. I played knock hockey before I was really even forming memories. 
The other day, my family went to a vacation house in the Berkshires, and they had an air hockey table. Air hockey is knock hockey's mean cousin. The rink has little holes punched all over it, and air blows through the holes so that the puck flies around the wood as though it's on ice. It's hard to learn, and there are lots of moving parts, all of which can break, as Diego will attest. Well, the sides are kind of broken, which makes it a little tricky to play because, I mean, you don't want your puck flying out of the walls, do you? The table in the Berkshires was practically unusable. Even the fan that blows the air through the holes, the very thing that makes air hockey air hockey, was broken. And to be clear, this game looked like it was maybe five years old. Right now, in my friend's basement, there's a knock hockey board that is as old as I am, which is old. The game in itself, because it's just basic, there's nothing to break. I think your average homeowner or consumer is like, I'm not going to throw this out. It's just built too well. I, I haven't used it in 30 years or 15 years, but I've, you know what? I'll just tuck it away somewhere. I'll just put it here and I'll get to it later. Someone will play it. You know what I mean? I just went to my dad's for, for uh, outside social distance dinner and there was a side table that he had some cutlery and dishes on and lo and behold, it was the fucking knockoffy table. No way. Upside yeah. down. He, he had just had it upside down. He just had it upside down. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? Minimalist designers have always known that the simpler the design, the less there is to break, the more sustainable it is. But they've also believed that the simpler the design, the more beautiful the product. When confronted with the final hockey game played before quarantine, I couldn't understand it. It was complex and chaotic. It was maximalist. But when broken down to its minimalist components, its sound, and its simple rules, something beautiful emerged. And if you don't believe me, then here's this. While I was writing this episode, the NHL playoffs began, and I have watched a hockey game every single night for the past week and a half, and I've loved it, truly. The sounds provided an entryway, but it was knock hockey this ridiculous part of my memory that actually caused me to fall in love. The other day, I watched a goal that changed everything. A player on the Boston Bruins collected the puck behind the goal, ricocheted off the back wall so that it careened against the sideboards, and then flew into the path of a Boston Bruins attacker, who then slotted it past the goaltender. The goal itself was lovely, but it was the pass that mattered. Because it was a knock hockey pass bouncing off wooden walls the way I used to play when I was a child. And I celebrated the exact same way I would have if it was a meet and I locked in a game in his TV room. So here's my final takeaway from re-watching the last hockey game before quarantine. Hockey is a chaotic, complex game, and these are chaotic and complex times. When we look at our world and the problems we're all facing, we often jump to the chaotic and complex solutions. But sometimes, all we have to do is listen, strip away all the other stuff, so that we can build something simple, sustainable, beautiful. And by the way, it turns out that the reason that Julia and Joshi didn't know about Nakaki is that the Karam company was a small company from way out in Michigan. They didn't have a huge budget to market their game, so they focused on New York. And they struck up partnerships with schools and local organizations. 
They sold en masse to community groups like my elementary school and Ari's summer camp. In other words, they were thoughtful and clever and minimalist in their approach, and it worked. As of 2019, there are still knock hockey tournaments that are organized in Harlem. I don't know if any of those kids have ever watched an actual hockey game in their life, but I know that every single one of them knows how to score off of a face-off or chant knock hockey one, knock hockey two, knock hockey three. First Time Long Time is produced by Julia Chen and written and edited by me. Nasia Kamrat and Joshi Balgos are the executive producers and co-owners of Faculty. C.T. Trable is our director of production. Raina Kamrat is our researcher and Annika Carlson is our intern. Next time, we're looking at fan culture and singing and whether or not Julia will object to me calling soccer football. for listening.